Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire, and it begins season two of Ruins of Empire. But you don't have to just listen; you can follow along by grabbing the ebook or paperback copy of Templum Venerus, both of which are available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble right now. And as always, leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. Anything you can do helps more people find this project and lets us know that there really are people on the other side of the mic who dig this. And now, without further ado, season two of Ruins of Empire. Templum Venerus begins now. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Templum Venerus, book two of the Ruins of Empire Project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author. Prologue. Excerpts from the Fall. The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization, Volume 1, The Global Revolution, by Martin Raff. It seems obvious to us now, at the beginning of the 31st century. But if one were living in the early-mid-21st century, the Federated Republic of Brazil might have seemed like an unlikely candidate to lead a complete, worldwide revolt against corporate rule. Though a vast and resource-rich nation, Brazil's dense rainforests and mountainous terrain meant that large swaths of the country, mostly in the north, were sparsely inhabited. Corruption and political instability kept it from becoming the economic powerhouse that the United States, China, or even the European Union was at the time. The military, though a dominant regional force, only had enough personnel and equipment to engage in smaller humanitarian interventions and, occasionally, overthrow its own government. But hidden inside that vast country was a will that could easily make up for its perceived shortfalls. All the people needed was a singular force to set them to a unified goal. The great man theory of history states that all that is required is a leader with the right drive and charisma, a man who can move the population with his words, fearlessly lead the military, and inspire economic greatness, which is what makes Diana Adriana such a singular figure in all of human history. Part Adolf Hitler, part George Washington, and part Moses, Diana Adriana's gender is perhaps the least interesting thing about her, and yet documents from that era obsess about it to a laughable degree. During a time when political leaders all over the globe appeared not only powerless against the multinational corporations, but willing participants in the exploitation of their populations, maybe an ingrained maternal instinct was required for the right person to see and fully understand the dangers that a global corporation might pose to the well-being of her people. It could also be argued it was because of the perceived deficiencies of her sex that she was able to accomplish what every other leader of a major country during that time failed to do. At every step, the multinational corporations and their government allies underestimated her resolve and the resolve of the Brazilian people. The tale of the global revolution of the late 21st and early 22nd century is a tale of men and women accomplishing feats that were considered impossible. In that way, it is fitting that it was led by the most improbable leader of that time. Chapter 1 In 2081, and nearly the age of 40, Diana Adriana was hardly the archetype for one of the greatest political leaders the world had ever known. 
when she first emerged on the world stage, she was largely regarded as a nobody, having run at least three failed or failing businesses, and, as reports from that time ceaselessly mention, on her third marriage, she was dismissed as an upstart from the slums of Santos, who committed a terrible crime. From The Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization by Martin Raff. Easter Jacario reached out to touch a few icons floating in front of her that would align the radio telescope again and pressed the headphones tight over her ears. Her short black hair was a mess and fell around her face to her shoulders wherever it happened to. Her almond eyes were closed tight and her small frame was curled up on the chair. It was as if her entire body was focused on the sound coming through the earphones. Behind the hiss of static, there was a whistling noise modulating between high and low tones. The regular rhythm told her that it was human-created. She reached up to touch another translucent green icon hovering in front of her and leaned close to the built-in microphone on the console. Hello. Do you hear me? Is anybody there? She clasped her earphones around her head again, listening for something, anything, a tiny variation in the timing, slightly different pitches, a stop or a start, literally anything but the constant modulating whistle. She sat there with her hands tight over her earphones, listening to the noise for a while, an hour, maybe more. It would take that long for her words to reach the source of the sound. All she could do was wait. She became aware of a low, dull thumping. She perked up for a moment, for the briefest period she believed, after days of working, that she had uncovered something new. But then she realized that the noise came from inside the cramped little control room she sat in. She looked up to confirm that the feed was still recording and pulled the headphones off her head. Another series of quick low thumps from the door, followed by a timid male voice. Uh, Miss Jacario, I, I hate to bother you. Easter tossed the headphones on the console, stood up, and jerked open the middle door. It was Joseph. Of course it was Joseph. He was the only other human stuck on this installation in the middle of nowhere. The steward of the Colombian Province Radio Telescope Installation took a deep breath, and adjusted his glasses. It's Mr. Marcello again. He says that... Isra let out an exasperated sigh. Tell him I have the telescope for at least another hour. She started to shut the door, but Joseph stood in the way. Yes, I understand. Only I already told him that. About an hour ago. Isra whipped her head around to look at the icons floating over the console. What time is it? Just about dawn, ma'am, Joseph said apologetically. Isra sighed again, letting more and more frustration creep into her voice. Put him through. The steward gave her a slight nod before he turned and withdrew to his work area. Isra went back to the chair in front of the console and sat down hard. While she waited, she watched the data coming in. There was still no variation, and the signal was getting weaker. She would have to make an adjustment soon or risk losing the signal entirely. One of the green icons floating in front of her flashed, and she reached to touch it. Had it been a physical thing, she would have slapped it across the room. Good morning, Emilio, she said with forced monotone. For you, perhaps. For me, it's another evening where I'm woken up in the middle of the night by crews complaining that you refuse to give them the time they are allotted on the telescope. The windows of time I am given to use the telescope are unacceptably short. For example, 
Given Jupiter and Earth's relative positions in their orbit, and given the speed of light, it takes exactly 41.35 minutes for a signal. I don't care, Isra, said Emilio, his voice bellowing over the speaker. I've got scientists who have work to do, same as you, and they have booked time on that telescope, and they need... I am only given the scraps of time they leave behind, she snapped back. How can I accomplish anything? Isra, Emilio interrupted. Listen carefully. The only reason you are given that much time is to keep you out of the way. I find that assessment extremely offensive, Isra began. Sorry, but it's the truth. After what happened on Titan, they just needed somewhere to put you. A place where you could be serving the ministry on paper, but in all practical terms, where you couldn't do any more damage. Isra's mouth went dry. She clenched her teeth and shook slightly as she suppressed her rage. What? You think I don't know? Emilio continued. It's an open secret, Isra. Every ministry official knows. Hell, even Joseph probably knows. And I'm sorry about that. I really am. But if you think that means I'm going to spend every waking moment of my life catering to your... Just let me file a report, Isra conceded. About 15 minutes. That is all I require at this time. There was a long pause on the other end before Emilio replied. Fine, but this better be the last I hear of you overrunning, okay? Use the time you were given and take it as the gift that it is. With a click, the line went dead. Isra reached up to touch another icon and began speaking. Isra Jacario, Human Reconnection Project, Observation 4116, February 15th. 3005, 4.45 a.m. Current observation of object designation Juliet Charlie 41446 does not respond when hailed, nor does its signal show any detectable variation. Object most likely a forgotten pre-fall probe in a trans-Jovian orbit. She reached out to wave her hand through the holographic interface again, and it disappeared. Nearby, a small silver box word an ejected transparent disc the size of a coin. Isra pulled it from the drive and held it up to the dim light, watching the glowing numbers crawl across its transparent surface. Those rotten numbers. There was no civilization, no lost colony, not even an ancient derelict settlement craft. It was just a probe. Six months of work, and the numbers gave her the location of a piece of primeval space trash. Of course, she knew that from the beginning. When she returned from Titan, the Ministry had assigned her a list of about 30 unknown objects emitting radio signals. Any one of these objects, she was told, could be a whole new colony left behind since the fall. Another opportunity to find the remains of the global civilization that existed until the mid-22nd century. Another chance to redeem herself. It was a lie. She knew it then, and she knew it now. She was, however, unaware of how many other people knew. Or maybe she was but her own stubbornness kept her from seeing it. In a flash of rage, she flung the worthless disc across the room where it shattered against the door. Joseph opened it a second later, balancing a tray with two steaming mugs. He looked down at the remains of the disc and then at her. His dark brown eyes and weak smile conveyed a knowing sympathy as he said, No results again? Isra flopped back into the chair. I need a time machine. I want to go back before the fall and throttle the man who came up with carbon nanotube cathodes. Joseph put the tray down on an empty spot on the console and handed her a mug. What makes you believe it was a man? Isra sipped her drink and made a face. She still couldn't get used to the yerba mate tea Joseph made. 
It tasted like she was sucking on a tree root, pulled right from the ground and dipped in pine sap. Still, it had a caffeine jolt that could have a man on his deathbed strapping on his dance shoes one last time. At this late hour, or early depending on how you looked at it, it helped. No woman would invent a technology that would outlive her own damn civilization, she said in between sips. We are more practical. Every moon, planet, and empty space on the elliptical has some piece of useless garbage beeping away because they are powered with batteries that have a lifespan measured in geological scales. Could be, Joseph said as he sat down on another chair at the console and took a mug from the tray. Isra didn't know why she felt the need to save face in front of Joseph. He was a nervous, fidgety man who constantly adjusted his wire-thin glasses, straightened his vest, he wore the same black and green tartan-patterned vest and pressed white shirt every day of his life, and looked down when he talked. He was nice enough, but he was one of those men who felt compelled to be endlessly helpful. He had sharp features and a little smile that Easter would have to admit, if pressed and assuming the other party could keep a secret, were kind of cute. And he had a crush. All the signs were there from day one. Dilated pupils, a slight flush in the face, and the tiny sheen of perspiration on the tops of his ringing hands were all there from the moment the two were introduced. Isra had this nagging feeling that, after months of working up the courage, he was about to act on it. In fact, from his posture, his back straight and his chest out, the way his eyes wandered, every direction but at her, and the faint confidence we spoke to her indicated it was coming. Isra turned to the console and closed her eyes. Please, not today. If you have any sense, not today. Uh, if you're almost done for the day, said Joseph, his voice shaking slightly, I was wondering if you wanted to have breakfast with me. It took every bit of willpower to stifle a frustrated groan. He added, I know a great place in town. They have coffee. Isra cut him off. Listen, Joseph, I appreciate the offer, and I am flattered, and I understand that you feel an attraction to me, and it is nice of you to offer. Yes, I was going for nice, said Joseph, suddenly extremely interested in the contents of his mug. But your timing is appalling. I understand. Your male instincts see a woman, a woman that you care for, but a woman that is vulnerable. In pursuing a romantic relationship, I can see how that vulnerability might be seen as... It's a signal, Joseph set his mug down so hard that the liquid sloshed on the tray. Easter clenched her teeth again. It is not... It's just a series of situations that are beyond my control, and I just need to... No, no, not that, Joseph pushed in front of Isra. I mean the dish is picking up something. Isra leaned to the side to see around the man and watched the waveform diagram displayed on one of the monitors above the controls. It showed a scrolling visual representation of the sounds collected from space. There were a couple of odd spikes just now. Her eyes drifted to an adjacent monitor that showed the orientation of the dishes. It looks like Venus drifted into the scanning range. I have checked Venus before, but there has never been any signal. Probably just solar interference. Joseph shook his head as he adjusted the controls. Solar interference doesn't look like that. Neither do satellites. This is different. Joseph activated the speakers and the room filled with a static hiss. Isra scooted the chair back as Joseph continued to adjust the controls to get a clearer signal. She closed her eyes, listening for any sound other than the nothingness of space. The telescope steward stood back from the controls and waited in silence. After a few minutes, Isra shook her head. 
She had to admit that she allowed herself a moment of hope. But now she wasn't sure if she could take another crushing disappointment. Forget it, Joseph. Turn it off. I am already late, and the other team is waiting. Joseph's hand shot out to stop hers, and he touched the top of her wrist. Their eyes met for a moment. His eyes pleaded with her to trust him. Isra let her hand drop. Again, they listened to the static in silence. Isra sat still with her eyes closed while Joseph repeatedly cleaned his glasses with the bottom of his vest. The hiss picked up as the sun outside started to rise, adding to the random atmospheric interference and cosmic background noise that the radio always picked up. A red light started flashing, indicating that somebody, probably the science team upset at having their window cut short, was trying to establish a connection. Joseph. The static was cut by a high-pitched whine, and then somewhere underneath it, a female voice. Joseph manipulated the sensitivity controls, and the voice became clearer, but the message was still garbled. Por favor, responda. Está de cidade de Satiria. Tem algo e I. De cidade de Satiria. I don't think that's a satellite, said Joseph, cleaning his glasses for at least the tenth time in the last few minutes. Could be a programmed distress signal from a transport ship lost since the exodus. Some tomb floating around for a thousand years calling for help, she replied, unconvinced. You're the romantic type, aren't you? said Joseph. Ignoring the jibe, Isra leaned close to the microphone. Hello. This is the Columbian Province Radio Telescope, South America, Planet Earth. Do you copy? I'll alert Mr. Marcello again, said Joseph, turning toward the door. Isra leaned back in the chair. He will not be pleased. Joseph turned, flashed her that little smile, and adjusted his glasses. No, he won't. Joseph scurried off, and Isra waited. Venus and Earth were close in their orbits right now, if she remembered correctly. If somebody was listening on the other end, it shouldn't take long for them to receive the signal and reply. What did Emilio say? Isra breathed when Joseph returned fifteen minutes later. He wasn't happy. He's going to reschedule his team's window, but with all the shuffling, Joseph didn't need to say any more. The implication was clear. The district coordinator and asset management director of the ministry's radio astronomy department were upset. And like so many people with long titles and marginal power, he was going to lash out to prove his worth. Easter would be lucky to get five minutes strung together after today. They waited. Thirty minutes passed with nothing just the mind-numbing hiss of unwavering static. After 45 minutes, Isra decided she couldn't take it, not two letdowns in one day. She sighed. I am going to get some sleep, and I will do some follow-up next week, if I am even allowed in the building next week. Crestfallen, Joseph hung his head as he removed his glasses for one last good cleaning. I'm... I'm sorry, Isra. She gave him what she hoped was a reassuring smile as she reached out to shut the power down. The radio crackled. Sim, Sim, io violo, estado ciudad de satiria, esio voce, el funciona, el no posia acreditar de la funciona. Joseph nearly dropped his glasses as he stared at the console. That's not a recorded message. That's a response. Someone is responding. Isra closed her eyes and listened as the voice continued. It is a romance language, I think. Maybe some version of Italian or French. Set the dish to track Venus throughout the day and record every word until I find a translator. 
Oh, and get a message to the head of the Ministry of South American Science Research. Try to get Emilio off our back today. Joseph darted for the door to carry out her orders. If you think he was mad before... I do not care, said Isra, already diving into the work ahead. Not anymore. I do not think I will be on this planet much longer. Not for a while. Althea felt a rush of euphoria as she walked down the stairs from the sea train station and into Orchester's entertainment district. It wasn't just the chemicals they pumped into the air, a combination of hormones, pheromones, and good old-fashioned opioids to make people relaxed, happy, and more importantly, free with money. It was the anticipation. The thrill excited her and, at the same time, terrified her. But she was here because she needed to be, not, she told herself over and over again, because she wanted to be. Althea's eye was drawn to the sky as she walked where resonant transformer coils towered over the buildings and flashes of blue electricity occasionally shot between them. They charged the air and powered the sea of lights that lit every corner of the street in diffused green, blue, and pink light. The air was warm, spiced with the aroma of flowers and pheromones, and alive with chatter, laughter, and deep throbbing noises from the clubs that lined the streets. It was so loud that Althea couldn't hear the sharp cracks of electricity from the coils above. The streets were busy tonight. Everywhere Althea turned her head, she saw the citizens of Orchester laughing or arguing, lovers making out or bickering, droids and automatons beckoning drunks from one bar to another, each promising more exotic pleasures than the last. A group of prostitutes walked toward her wearing skimpy clothing that cycled through various colors before becoming nearly transparent. Althea sensed a couple of the girls size her up, possibly either to gauge whether she was an unlicensed practitioner that needed to be reported, or fresh meat they could recruit for easy money. Either way, Althea wasn't here to sell her body despite what the tight red dress she wore might indicate, nor was she here to join the foolish antics of Orchester's rich and overindulged, though a part of her longed for the carefree day she spent laughing, drinking, and flirting with her friends from the hospital the ones who had the talent to blow off study sessions and rich families to support such a lifestyle. That was her previous life. Tonight, the district was her hunting ground. She passed by a dance club and paused to scan the crowd through the window. The men were young and dressed in the latest fashions to flaunt their wealth, but it was an illusion. Althea could sense it. Something in the way they wore their suits, how they tied their ties, how their glasses and jewelry all looked new, most of them had probably spent their last fiat on tonight's attire. It wouldn't do Althea any good to bother with them, so she moved on. Her eyes darted across the street where a man drank alone on a patio outside a club. He had a pressed silver suit so shiny that it reflected the street's lights. His hair was so rigidly styled she imagined she could bounce a cannonball off his scalp without him noticing. He was too well ordered to work at the hospital which, in this town, meant financial consortium for the corporation which meant money. He was also quite young, which indicated his career was just getting started, and while he might have access to some wealth, it probably wouldn't be enough. Besides, she was not to ruin a promising new career. An older man stumbling out of a bar distracted her. That was more her speed. His clothing suggested executive for some consortium, probably medical. A ring on his finger said he was married, but the way his eyes met hers told her that he wasn't constrained by that. An assumption he proved as he walked past a brothel and stopped to window shop. 
Althea sighed as she walked past. He was clearly in the mood for something physical, and, although Althea hadn't always drawn that line in the past, it now felt like an act of desperation. Things weren't that bad. Not yet. In truth, she didn't need the money. Fiat entered her account regularly from the ministry as a retainer while the Human Reconnection Project was under investigation. It was enough to eat and pay rent, but that was it. She spent her days poring through the newest medical journals on the NouveauNet, the one she still had access to at any rate. When she was bored or frustrated with that, she would go for a walk, keep up with the few remaining friends she had from the medical consortium, or anything else she could think of to pass the time. There were two things she wouldn't do. The first was contact Vago Spade. The second... Well, the first one was the important one. A fresh injection of cash meant she could afford to go shopping, eat out, or even do some traveling. The latter held particular interest, for no other reason than it would put some distance between them. Vago needed some time to heal, and Althea... Well, travel sometimes helped her discover what she needed. A flash of light from the sky in between the buildings ahead caught her attention as three district drones rounded the corner and scanned the crowd on the street. She cursed herself for letting her mind wander and ducked into an alleyway, not so fast as to arouse suspicion, but fast enough to get out of sight before they spotted her. She crouched in the doorway as they buzzed overhead. In the streets, nothing changed. Most people didn't even notice the drones anymore. That's because they belonged here. They had money in an account. They had credit, and they didn't, and this was the most important part, have a criminal record. Especially a criminal record that involved taking advantage of rich people in the district. Once a soft hum from the drones died away, she took a deep breath, walked back out into the street, and nearly ran into the young man from the patio. Well, hello. You look lost, darling. He said, stepping back with the wide eyes and big smile of a man who, entirely by accident, wandered into a pleasant surprise. I'll be sorry. I should watch where I'm going, Althea mumbled, stepping around him. Hold on, not so fast, he said, rushing to keep up. Where are you headed this lovely evening? Althea kept walking and added some extra speed to her step. I was just looking for an old haunt of mine. A quiet drink, maybe. Alone, she added with some conviction. You're in luck. I love drinking alone. Maybe we could drink alone together. Come on. It's on me. He matched her speed. He was persistent. She gave him that. Althea stopped and looked him in the face. He was cute, but he couldn't be much over twenty. A kid, really. And yet, he looked at her with the confidence of a man who was used to getting everything he ever wanted. His eyes wandered all over her body, letting him know precisely what Althea intended her targets to learn. Her bright, unnaturally red hair and emerald green eyes, both products of genetic modification, told him that she had money. Her jewelry, elegant but understated, indicated that she was a good professional member of the corporation when the sun was up, but the tight red dress that clung to her body said that since it was dark, they may as well have some fun. Althea, in turn, took a moment to size up her target. She examined the silver suit that he wore and recognized the design. It was expensive, and it was real. No forger could pull off the exact lines or the way the fabric shimmered in the light. Yet, there was a hint of desperation in his voice. Something about the way he said the phrase, on me. It was as if he knew that nobody, especially a beautiful woman, would choose to spend time with him unless he was paying. Desperation meant something unfulfilled. A need. Maybe she had misread him before. He wasn't her ideal target, but he might be just what she was looking for. 
I don't know, she said, casting her eyes downward. Why not? He leaned back, and his body swayed. He was already a drink or two in himself. Because you don't know what you're getting into. He reached out to touch her hand. That's a lovely accent. Britannia. I grew up there. I've heard it's beautiful. I've always wanted to see it. Althea put on a shy, flirty smile. She could almost see him go weak at the knees. It's like anywhere else in the world. If you've got money, then it's perfectly lovely. The boy grinned and held out his arm. If that's true, then the whole world is our diamond. Come on, one drink, I promise. Maybe he did deserve it, just a little. It probably wouldn't be much of a score anyway, and the boy could clearly afford it. Think of it as a learning experience. She brushed back her flaming red hair and smiled. An expression she crafted and honed like a weapon. She hadn't used it in a while, but judging by the man's eyes, it still had its desired effect. She didn't feel happy. She felt exhilarated. Like the moment before a skydive, playing the winning hand, or right before sex. Okay, she said. One drink. You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, the second book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Predator by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. City of Geeks. Independent new media produced in Idaho.